today is July 3rd, and uh, <coughs> one of the things that uh, we try to do uh, on the day around uh, uh, the 4th of July is we really try to focus our attention uh, on how that God wants us to relate uh, to the government and, and, and how that we as followers of Christ and as the church uh, should live in the United States of America or how the church should exist regardless of what nation you're in. And as we, uh, as we look today, we begin a series in Romans chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 13. We're going to spend the next three Sundays, uh, three weekends on Romans chapter 13, but verses one through seven helps us understand uh, the relationship between the gospel and the government. Uh, we live in the home of the free, uh, home of the free and land of, land of the free and home of the brave. Sorry, uh, it's been a long week. Uh, and, and that is a gift of God's grace to us. Let's make no mistake. We live in a nation uh, where we experience freedoms that most nations and the church in most eras of its history has never experienced. The gift of the United States of America, uh, which we believe has been ordained by God, and we'll see this in a second, the gift is the freedoms that we've experienced to declare the good news of Jesus in America wherever we desire, whenever we desire, and however we desire. Uh, We have a freedom, a liberty, uh, to live out the gospel without threat of government intervention or interference. We have freedoms that we've enjoyed for 240 years, and that is a gift of God's grace. But it's not a gift just so that we can boast about living in America. God has orchestrated us living in this land so that we might not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we might use that freedom that he's given us in this nation to declare his goodness and his greatness with the greatest amount of liberty ever known in the history of the church. What frightens me, however, is that with all the freedoms that we've enjoyed for 200 plus years, The church in America seems to have forgotten the reason that God has given us this freedom. We tend to think only personally for ourselves. I have the freedom and the right to do this or that or the other thing. And that's that's true, but we've lost sight of God has given us this freedom so that we might live the mission that he's given us. Not so that we can simply boast in our right to pray, but so that we might pray. Not merely so that we can boast in our right uh, to uh, look at the Ten Commandments and follow them, but that we would follow them. Not so that we can boast in our right to assemble, but so that we would assemble and worship God. Somehow, we've lost sight, the urgency to fulfill our responsibilities with the freedoms that God has given us. 
In our culture today, in, in, in the United States of America, we do understand that things are more difficult today than perhaps they were 20 years ago. I feel that. I don't know if you feel that. As a follower of Jesus, I, I feel, and it may be anecdotal, it may just be the, 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 uh, the spirit of the time, but I feel as though it, it's uh, not as, um, it, it, it's, it, I'm a little bit more restricted. I'm not restricted by government. I'm not restricted by the police. They're not going to come in and say anything to me because I preach this message today. But as you look at the sweep and the, and the movement of the government, there is indicator that some of our freedoms are not as free as they once were. Now, that may lead us to moan and complain and gripe and, 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 and be, feared, uh, be fearful. But we need to remember that for the majority of the history of the church since New Testament times, the church has flourished and thrived under all sorts of governmental restrictions. You look at the history of the church at from its very beginning, you certainly had Jewish uh, persecution that took place in Jerusalem. We read about that in the book of Acts. We understand that the book of Revelation was written during a time of persecution where John the Apostle was exiled to the island of Patmos. Before that, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s A.D., You had different emperors impose different types of restrictions. Perhaps the most commonly known is Nero in the 60s AD. Nero, who blamed uh, the Christians for the burning down of Rome and, and Christians experienced persecution and yet they flourished. What we may not know or remember are there other uh, emperors uh, in Rome that created great hardship for believers in the 80s uh, AD. It was, it was a, a persecution by death of being a follower of Jesus. If you didn't worship the way they wanted you to worship, then you could be killed. There was a guy named uh, uh, Septimus Severus who uh, was the, the son of Commodus Severus, Septimus instituted in the second century AD, he instituted certain rules and, uh, that, that forbade uh, the practice of being a follower of Jesus. And he, he, he said that if you didn't worship the Roman gods, you would be uh, exiled or killed. Later in, in the end of the second, uh, third century AD and into the fourth century AD, there was the great persecution that had four edicts. The first one said that every church building would be burned and destroyed. The second one said that every clergy, every, every uh, preacher type like me must sacrifice to a pagan god. The third one said by 304 AD, they said that if, if, uh, if you as a follower of Jesus did not sacrifice to pagan gods, you would be immediately killed. We, 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 we understand that persecution 
hit its high note in the Roman Empire at the, in the fourth century, but, but it didn't stop there. The church has been persecuted. Followers of Jesus have been persecuted throughout time under all forms of government. Even today, if you go beyond the borders of the United States of America, we encounter individuals who, if they say they're followers of Jesus, they are threatened with death, beheadings. In places in India where we have church planters in the northern areas of, of, of India, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have no family, you have no income, and you will be beaten if they get their hands on you. And yet here in America, we bemoan the fact that we feel as though we're not getting our fair share. I understand it, but we need to remember that the church of Jesus Christ has flourished in the most difficult days. And as we think about what the scripture calls us to do and what the gospel demands of us. We look to Romans 13, and by the way, Romans 13 was not written by accident. The apostle Paul was inspired by God to pen these words to prepare the church in Rome for the persecution that was certain to come. And these words do not give us Uh, A great rally cry, but they do teach us how that the gospel calls us to relate to the government. The gospel does call us to relate to the government in a very specific way in Romans 13. This is not the only place. In Titus chapter, uh, in Titus chapter 3, we find Paul, again, writing about how we are to relate to the government. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll look at it in a moment, we hear Peter tell us how we're supposed to relate to the government. Jesus himself said, render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, render unto God that which belongs to God. The Bible tells us as citizens of the United States of America how that you and I are to relate to the government. So as we look at this passage, let's understand that the gospel itself has awakened in us a demand for obedience to God first, but also demands on how we live as citizens of the United States of America. So in Romans chapter 13, the apostle Paul writes these words. Beginning in verse 1, let every soul, every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Paul helps us to understand our relationship with the government. And ultimately, as we look at this passage, let's let's find the context here. Beginning in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is helping believers to see how that they could live for God's honor and fame and glory in everyday life. Up to Romans chapter 
12, Paul was giving some doctrinal things that were very important for believers. But beginning in chapter 12, when he writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove that which is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. As he begins to describe how that we live transformed lives in everyday life, all of chapter 12 is practical exhortations on how to live with the watching world in mind, how to relate to people outside the church as well as within the church. The last verse of chapter 12, Paul says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then he writes in chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to governmental authorities. Now, that's not an accident. Remember, the chapter breaks weren't part of Paul's original writing. He didn't write chapter 13, verse 1. He just wrote the next sentence after 1221. There was a flow of thought that Paul was getting at for us to hear that God wants us to hear. And it all flows from the gospel of which Paul was never ashamed. The gospel that was the power of God for salvation to those who believed. And this gospel motivated Paul to write and to live in a way that honored God in everyday life, even as he related to government. Now, Paul was no stranger to persecution. And Paul was no stranger to whip, being whipped and beaten and, and, and put in prison. And yet he writes in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governmental authorities. Well, what was Paul getting at? Well, I think what he was telling us, and I think the scripture is clear on this, that the gospel demands that you and I be good citizens. We are called by the gospel of Jesus Christ that has brought us into a friendship with God, that has rescued us from sin to be good citizens. Remember, Paul was writing to a group of people who were in the nexus of, of the rule of the entire world as they knew it. They were living in Rome, the centerpiece of governmental authority over the civilized world. And as he wrote to them, he was writing to them in such a way that they understood they need to live out the gospel so that others might see them as good citizens. Now, guys... We need to be seen as good citizens. We need to pay our taxes, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 13. But before Paul gets to the application of paying taxes, he goes through a series of arguments showing us that we should be good citizens in the United States of America, just as God called them to be good citizens in Rome. The Apostle Peter says it a little bit differently, and here's the passage. 1 Peter chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Listen to these words. 
Peter writes, now this is Peter, and he's probably about a decade from being killed by the Roman authorities. Just, just a headline there. Peter writes, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or, to, or as to those who are sent by God for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. What Paul was writing, what Peter was writing, was that as followers of Jesus, made alive by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are called by God to be good citizens, to honor the king, and to submit to the governing authorities. That submission is not always easy. But Paul and Peter himself didn't say submit when it was easy. He said submit. Now, as we look at this passage, we, you're already trying to think, well, you know, we haven't always submitted to governing authorities. Just hold on to that. We'll get there in a second. But let's deal with the text as it comes. The command in Romans 13 verse 1 is for us to submit. And the reason that we submit in 1 Peter chapter 2 was so that those who are watching us, who are not followers of Jesus, won't have wicked things to say about us. That we would cause no offense except the offense of the gospel. That we would be good citizens. Now the question is, are you being a good citizen? Only you can answer that unless you do something out loud that we can see and we know, you know, if... Yeah, if I break a... Edie was tell, tell, telling me that uh, I shouldn't speed and... Uh, I don't know if I told the story here at 8 o'clock, but I'm not going to retell it. Uh, last week, I told a story about getting a speeding ticket. But anyway, um, uh, she told me this week, I think it was Tuesday, she said, you shouldn't speed. And I, and I said, well, I know I shouldn't speed. And she said, well, it, it's, it's what the law said. You know, it's the law. And I, I understand that. And then I had to deal with Romans 13, verse 1, and it actually says... Submit yourself to the governing authorities. That, that means I'm not supposed to speed. Well, that was a little bit convicting. I got over it quickly as I got on the highway, but, but it was a little bit convicting. But remember, the motivation for being a good citizen is not our patriotism. The motivation for being a good citizen is honoring the God who has saved us. The motivation for being a good citizen is part of Paul's argument as he says, for every governmental authority has been established by God and ordained by him. 
So as we look at this passage, we understand that we're supposed to submit uh, as good citizens. The question is, what happens when the government gets a little bit crazy? What do you do when the government institutes laws and, and, and maintains laws that, that, that cost human lives? What do we do then? Do we still submit? Hold on to that thought. We'll get there. But the first question we must ask is, am I being a good citizen for the cause of Jesus Christ? Now, as we face a government that is continually hostile toward Jesus, how do we live? How do we live in such a way when, when, we're, um, uh, when we're living in a culture and a climate like people in other parts of the world under persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ? How do we live? And, and the second ingredient to this that I want us to hear today is that as we're called to be good citizens, the gospel also makes us brave as followers of Jesus in a hostile world. The gospel makes us brave. We live in crazy times. But the gospel makes us brave. I want you to listen closely to what Paul writes at the end of verse 1 and then beginning in verse 2. Paul writes, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is, now get this, there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Okay, so before we start going to the American Revolution, before we start asking questions about civil disobedience, let's deal with the text. As you read that ver- those two verses, what do those two verses say? It says that if Hillary Clinton becomes president of the United States, that has been ordained by God. It says that if, Rome, if uh, Roman, uh, Donald Trump, he reminds me of Rome, I don't know why. If Donald Trump is elected president of the United States, That's been ordained by God. Now, you don't hear that a lot in the pulpit, do you? But that's exactly what that verse means. It means that Barack Obama becoming president of the United States was ordained by God. We might not like that, but that's what it means. I didn't get any amens on that. I don't understand why people didn't amen that. I We live in crazy times. And if you're like me, I am shivering and shaking at the prospects of who the next president of the United States is going to be. We don't have, in my humble opinion, we do not have good options. And when they talk about the lesser of two evils, I feel it in the depths of my bones. 
What is the hope for us? The Well, it wasn't quite rhetorical, but if y'all want to shout it out and preach the sermon, go ahead on. The hope for us is not who is sitting in the White House. The hope for us is a sovereign God is orchestrating events so that he is glorified and the gospel will have wings to fly. See, the gospel makes us brave because it teaches us trust in a sovereign God. Now, we might not like the options we have before us. I certainly don't. Full disclosure, I was one of the evangelicals that went to the meeting with Trump. And if Miss Clinton would invite me, I'd go to a meeting with her, too. And I walked out of that meeting with Trump with no more clarity, no more confidence, no more um, uh, joy than I did when I walked in. And I didn't have a lot of clarity, and I had very little confidence, and I had no joy. The meeting changed my mind not one whit. You might say, well, what is your mind? Well, I don't know yet. You've asked me, many of you have asked me, and that's not a preacher talk, that's real talk. Many of you have asked me, how am I supposed to vote? My answer is I have no idea. I do not know. And I can tell you what others have argued, you know, that looking toward the Supreme Court, not voting for a president, voting for a Supreme Court justice and the nominations and all that kind of stuff. And I understand those arguments, but man, it's hard It's hard because the truth is I don't trust either one of the presidential candidates. But the good news is I trust God who is sovereign. When we who are of the gospel understand that God is sovereign, we can trust him. Now, God being sovereign does not mean that we always have an easy time as the church or as followers of Jesus. It doesn't mean that we have a, 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 just a clear playing field all the time. Sometimes God needs to teach us patience. Sometimes God needs to lead us through suffering. Sometimes God needs to awaken our urgencies. But we can trust that God is always working good for his people even in times of difficulties. We can trust a sovereign God. Now, here's what leads us to be fearful. It's when we're trusting ourselves or someone else rather than God. And the gospel here awakens us to see that God ordains and establishes the ruling authorities. God ordains and establishes those authorities so that they might exercise their authority for the good. I want you to look at verses 3 and 4 to understand what the role of government really is. Uh, I probably ought to turn there myself. In verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul continues his idea about submitting to government. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, 
but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he, being the governmental authority, he is God's minister to you, here it is, for the good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. The purpose of civil authority, the purpose of the government, is twofold. First, it is the sword. And that sword is to punish evil. But the primary goal of government, as ordained by God, the primary role is for the good. The primary role of government is for the good, the common good of the community. And God establishes government so that they might provide for the common welfare, using some of the language of America, that they might provide for the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness or pursuit of property if you're looking at Virginia's constitution. It, well, that's what it says. That was George Mason's pursuit of property, not not, not happiness. Thomas Jefferson wanted to be happy. He didn't want property. So he, he put property, I mean, happiness instead of property in the declaration. Anyway, what we see is that is God's ordained role for government for the good and to punish evil. Paul's argument is that if we are doing good, then we don't need to fear the government. If we are following the steps that God has given us to follow, if we're being obedient to him, first and foremost, then we should not fear the government. And even if the government gets off kilter, the gospel that says, I've rescued, God says, I've rescued you from your sin. I've broken the chains that have bound you. I've made you free as followers of Jesus, not as Americans, but as followers of Jesus. We can be courageous even in the face of persecution. Why? Because we know that God never never sleeps, nor is his ear heavy. He can hear us when we cry to him. He moves to help. He moves to nourish. He moves to provide for us. No matter what the government does, God is for us, and that's all we need. The gospel makes us brave. But as we look at this passage, and as we consider the gospel making us brave, I think it's also important to know where the gospel says the government ends and God begins. See, as followers of Jesus, we sing God bless America, home sweet home. And that's true for us living in this land, and, 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 and that's a wonderful sentiment. But as followers of Jesus, America is not home sweet home. As followers of Jesus, our home sweet home is in the presence of God. And this is merely our passing through land. We are pilgrims passing through, and the gospel tells us and teaches us that our allegiance, our primary, our first allegiance is to be to God. We are followers of Jesus, children of the living God first, and we're Americans second. 
And so, as we look at this passage, we see that government ordained by God is for the good to punish evil. But what happens when government ceases to be for the common good and instead of punishing evil, punishes the good? How do we respond and react to a government like that? We must remember that our first allegiance is to God. Look at verse 5, 6, and 7. In verse 5, Paul summarizes his arguments. And he says, Therefore you must be subject to the government not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also must pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Verse 7, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear is due, and honor to whom honor is due. Conscience in verse 5 refers to the moral responsibility that followers of Jesus have living in this world. Our moral responsibility is to be good citizens, but our moral responsibility, first and foremost, is to be good citizens of heaven. Our role, first and foremost, is to be faithful to God who has rescued us. And if at, if at any time the government's demands contradict the will of God, then we as followers of Jesus must stand up in civil disobedience. We are called to be faithful to God first and foremost. In verse 7, Paul concludes his discussion by saying, render to all what is their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Obedience to whom obedience is due. Honor to whom honor is due. Fear to whom fear is due. And Paul is most certainly referring back to the words of Jesus when he said, Render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, and render unto God that which belongs to God. Now this helps us navigate this 21st century American culture. You see, the gospel demands that we are good citizens of America. But the gospel demands first and foremost that we are good citizens of heaven first. And God requires, gets, our first and foremost allegiance. We certainly will render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. And obedience to those laws and demands that are necessary... But if at any time our nation, our government determines that good is evil and evil is good and puts upon us the requirements of doing that which is contrary to what God requires, then we must stand. 
We must stand for God first, regardless of the price that it will pay. Regardless of the cost. If that means First Norfolk will someday lose its tax-exempt status, big deal. If that means that they come in here at some point in time and tell me, if you say one more thing that we've outlined for you that you're not supposed to say, we're going to take you and put you in prison, big deal. We have lived in absolute freedom for a long, long, long time. And that freedom may be coming to an end. But the gospel makes us brave. And our allegiance is to God first and foremost. So we'll trust in him. And as you look at the choices that you have to make during this election cycle, I pray that you would consider your moral responsibility, not as a Republican or a Democrat or a Tea Partier or an Independent But I pray that you would consider the moral responsibility that you have as a follower of Jesus Christ, giving your full allegiance to God in all things. And we, as the church called First Norfolk, we will not be ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here we stand. We can do no other. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As we've gathered here today on this wondrous day, O oh God, I pray that you would burden our hearts to hear your call, to hear your call from the gospel itself to be good citizens, to submit to the governing authorities over us, to understand that nothing that happens in governmental politics is a surprise to you, but rather it is under the umbrella of your sovereignty. And so we trust you, O oh God, as a good God, as a purposeful God. We trust you that you are moving and, and, and orchestrating the events in our history and in our present and even into our future for the good of the gospel and for the good of your people. We believe, O oh God, that what happens in America over the next year over the next four years and over the next decade will be orchestrated by you for your glory and we want to be part of that. Whatever role that you have called us, your people, to play, whether it's a role of leadership or whether it's a role of suffering, whatever the role is that you're calling us to play, God, we will stand and we will play that role. The gospel demands it. So God, by your grace, according to your good pleasure, may we, your people, not be ashamed of the gospel. Nor should we elevate any other human agency 
political construct or governmental authority as more powerful than you. Oh God, may we, your people, honor you as we relate to the government. And may we live according to the gospel that has saved us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.